continuing back in the book of Exodus. So if you'd like to open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 28. While I was gone, Curtis, our associate pastor, took us through the book of First Peter and Second Peter. And we had a few guest speakers. And Martin, of course, did a wonderful job in teaching as well. And I, I thank them. But I, I just want to share something personal before we begin. Now, some of you know this story. Some of you, some of you don't. But there's another page to, this, to, the, to my life story that God just wrote this last week, and I want to share it with you. And um, I got a phone call last week um, uh, from, from my oldest son. And um, what some of you may or may not know is that my, my oldest son uh, uh, was born out of wedlock to a girl that I got pregnant before I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And he was given up for adoption. And um, I, 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 my past is one that's rooted in um, sin, just like the rest of yours, but specifically my sin was in dealing and was given over to drugs and alcohol and the lifestyle that went along with that. And some of you know the details. I don't need to go into all of those this morning. But one of the consequences as a result of that sin lifestyle was um, uh, losing my firstborn son, who was given up for adoption. And um, although God had redeemed many things in my life over these last 20-some years of, of following him and serving him, um, I, I, for a long, long time, I felt like that thing in my life was something that would not be redeemed this side of eternity. I knew that God could do it, but I kind of just settled in my heart that it would be in eternity. And um, uh, five years ago, six years ago, five, five, five I don't remember the date for sure, but five or six years ago, my dad died of a heart attack unexpectedly at the age of 62. And um, on that very same day, just hours after I got the news about my dad dying, my eldest son, who I'd given up for adoption, his name is Kevin, um, called me. And um, it was a God thing. And, it was, and, and since then, I've been able to reestablish a relationship with him. Uh, God took my dad, but he brought my son back into my life and gave me a daughter-in-law and now two grandchildren to boot. Um, so it's an awesome thing. But the new page to that story that God's been writing in my life as far as a, 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 a testimony of redemption, of God's power to redeem and to restore and to make all things new again and to, to bring good um, out, of, out of all things is that um, my oldest son, Kevin, has opened up a new coffee shop with a partner in a place um, called Lodi. It's outside of Stockton in California. And he called me up last week and said, Dad, I really want you to come out for the grand opening. Uh, I'll fly you out. And um, I said, you don't have to fly me out. I'll come, but I can only come for that day. Um, so I did. I flew out on Wednesday and um, but what he wanted me to do is, is he also wanted me to meet his birth parent or his adoptive parents. And so I had the awesome opportunity of, of meeting face-to-face uh, his adoptive parents, Dave and Lori. And we went out to dinner together, and um, they all, they like Kevin, they all love the Lord. Uh, they're Christians, and um, it was very, very, very cool to be them. We got a big kind of like, I don't know what you call it, weird family photo together. So... <laughs> But I share that, and I try to be as open as I can with my life now and, 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 and my past life, because I know that we go through things in our lives, God, guys, where we struggle. And we, we come up to these places where we feel like they're impossibilities. And I'm here to tell you 
and encourage you this morning that nothing's impossible for our God. Nothing. Amen? All right, so Exodus chapter 28. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into our, our, our account. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your Son, Jesus Christ, for, your, for the sacrifice that was made on our behalf so that we could be redeemed um, from the debt that we owed, from eternal death, from hell. And God, again, we celebrate the work that you've done for us. We, we rejoice and are filled with joy, the knowledge of our salvation. And God, we give you thanks and praise this morning. And Father, I pray as we open up your word and study this morning that you would teach us by your spirit. Father, that you would make your will known to us, that you would, more importantly, Father, reveal yourself to us so that we might know you more. Lord, we love you and we desire to do this. And Father, as as you've laid into my heart to begin to pray for the other churches in our community as a congregation, Father, we want to start off by praying for the Efree Church here in, in Canyon City. And as they are meeting this morning also, we want to pray for Pastor Jim Tolson. Ask God that you would bless him and anoint him to teach your word. We pray for that congregation of believers, Lord, who love you and serve you, who are called by your name, and Lord, who also agree with us in that salvation comes by grace through faith. I pray, God, that you would unite us as one in you so that we might, Lord, together as, as your holy priests, bring glory to your name, to your kingdom, and to Canyon City, Colorado. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Exodus, so I feel the need to just kind of recap a little bit. And as we jump back into our study through the book of Exodus, I want to point out, or I want to remind you that up to this point, we've been reading about the children of Israel's deliverance, right, from Egyptian bondage. And we, and we know that in doing so, in, in, in delivering them, that God had called a man by the name of Moses. Nothing significant about him, nothing special about him. As a matter of fact, when God called Moses, Moses is all, don't call me, send someone else. And sometimes that's how we feel, right? God, you don't know what you're doing here. But yet God used Moses in a mighty way. And, and, and God used Moses to accomplish his work of deliverance um, by working many, it says, signs and wonders, many miraculous things through him. And through that process of delivering God's people out of, of Egypt, God was also making himself known, is what we're told. Known to his people and known to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people as well. And that's the cool thing about it. That's that experiential knowledge of God that we receive as God not only works in us, but works through us and we come to know him. And, and, and as we read about these things, I pointed out that what God had done to deliver the children of Israel and what he was now doing that we're going to be reading about this morning for them was all in fulfillment to the covenantal promises that God had made to Abraham. These promises were multifold. The first promise was a promise to bring forth a mighty nation from Abraham's descendants, a promise to make them his people to be their God and to dwell among them. A promise to give them the land of Canaan as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey, and a promise of blessing, which is a multifold thing, but, but a promise of blessing as God said that he would not only bless, bless the Hebrew people, but that he would bless all the other nations of the world through them. So after delivering the children of Israel, 
um, out of Egypt, who had entered Egypt as a family, we're told, that numbered 70, and were brought out some 400 years later as a mighty nation numbering more than a million, we see the fulfillment of God's promise. But in fulfilling this promise, God also made it clear that he had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt in order to bring them into the land of Canaan. And sometimes we need to remember that because God will deliver us out of something. And we, like the children of Israel, did often complain about it because it's not what we expected. And the children of Israel, we remember, like, oh, it was so much better in Egypt when we were in slavery, you know? And, and, and what God, because they were traveling and they were journeying and they were in the wilderness and there was these hard things going on, but God was doing these works and promises and fulfilling them to them in this place. And so that promise to deliver them out also came with the promise to bring them in, to bring them into the land, to give it to them as an inheritance, to give it to them as a possession. And this was something that God had also, we know, had also called Moses to do. But before fulfilling this promise, God was also going to fulfill the promise to be their God. He was going to, he was going to ratify that promise. He was going to make it real, tangible for them by dwelling among them. And this is what God did for the children of Israel as they, as they, as they camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And during this 11-month period of time that they were encamped there, God gave Moses' descendants several things. He gave them first his law. And he gave them the sacrificial system. Furthermore, he gave them the plans for the construction of the tabernacle, which would be the place where God would dwell, where God would meet with his people. And he even ordained a certain sect of them, a number of them, if you will, to be his priests. And these priests acted as God's mediators as they served in the tabernacle and inquired of God's will for his people. And it's here in chapters 28 and in chapters 29 where we are told about these priests and about how God had not only chose them, but as equally as important as choosing them, we're told that God dressed them and that God ordained them for these things. And so with that, we read in chapter 28, verse 1, it says, for us here. It says, now, God speaking to Moses, he says, now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister to me as priests. And Father, I ask again, Lord, that you would help us to understand these things and how it applies to our life through the empowering of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you tell us that on our own, we can't understand the spiritual things that are written down here. That it takes 
a supernatural act through the empowering of your spirit. And Lord, we trust that you'll do that again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, so in this chapter, we see the focus is on the choosing, right? First of all, the focus is on the choosing, and then, as it even says in these first four verses, then upon the clothing of the priest. While when we get to chapter 29, which is a continuation of, of the establishing of this priesthood, um, we'll see that in chapter 29, it'll deal primarily with their ordination. And, and, and it's, it's important to note, and I'm going to challenge you now, to, to read ahead for next week and find out why this is important, okay? Because in the ordination, um, uh, it consisted of an offering, two offerings, an offering for sanctification and an offering for consecration. And we should ask ourselves why. Why was that and how does that apply to our lives? And so I challenge you to read ahead and, and, and to look into that so that we, we can discuss it next week as we read through. An offering for the consecration of sanctification and an offering of consecration. And as we study through these two chapters, we need to keep in mind, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus for salvation, that we too have also been called to be God's priests, Right? To be God's priest who minister to him. In fact, we're told this in many different passages. The first is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, which says, Coming to him as, a, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up. Here's the reason why. This is how it applies to us. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? And then again we read a, a similar declaration about being the priests of God. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it goes on to say, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now a people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. And again, a second reason for why God has called us and made us royal priests, so that we, it says, might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I point this out this morning as we, we begin by way of reminder, because as we read about the Levitical priesthood, how Aaron and his sons and, and the Levites were chosen and established and, and equipped by God, we learn many things about the privileges, because it is a privilege, as well as the obligation, because with responsibility comes obligation. Or, uh, there, there's, a, there's an act that God calls us to. And so as we study this, we learn many things about the privileges and obligations that we today have as God's priests. In light of this, it needs to be clearly stated that the priest's first obligation, this was the foundation for everything else. And it's true, holds true in our lives as well. Without this foundation, everything else falls apart. But, 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 what needs to be but what needs to be said in this is that this, this very foundation, the first obligation, was to minister to God. They were his priests. We are his holy priesthood. 
And in doing so, we're first called to minister to God as we minister to God's people. Serving Him as we serve others. And in doing so, the priests represented the people before God as they ministered in the tabernacle and at the altar. But their first obligation was to serve God. And the realization of this has application to our own lives because it points out this fact. It points out that we cannot serve anyone. We cannot serve others in the way that God would have us unless we're first serving God acceptably in the way that he has set forth, in the way that he has commanded, in the way that he has ordained us to. And we see this truth emphasized when we realize that five different times Five different times in these two chapters, beginning here first in verse 1, are God's words of explanation to us for the priesthood, saying that, is, that it is so, if you see there, so that they may minister to me as priests. Now they had many obligations, many duties, many responsibilities, but this was at the foundation of it all. Likewise is the same in our life. And this is important to understand because if these priests... If they ever forgot, which they did when you study out history, if they ever forgot the obligation to God, then they would quickly begin to minimize their responsibilities to people. Think about that in your own life. If we ever forget our obligation to God, we're going to quickly begin to minimize our responsibility, our call to other people. And for the nation of Israel, when that happened... What happened? The, the, the nation as a whole began to spiritually decay. When we look at the church as a whole and their call to minister to the world, right? Not just to one another. And we see the decay of the world. We might see that we have some accountability in that. As we failed to meet our obligation to God to be the holy priests who serve him, who minister to him as we serve those around us. And so we know that the nation would spiritually decay and, and, and if the priests didn't do their job. And, and, and primarily because one of the, the main responsibilities of the priest was to represent God to the people, right? And how did they do that? They represented God to the, to the people by teaching them his law and by helping them obey it. And so the children of Israel might be a holy people, or excuse me, and so, 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 so the, help them obey it, yeah, so that the children of Israel might be a holy people through the law, through the keeping of the law, and through the knowing of it and the keeping of it. A people, ultimately, a holy people, and why does God want us to be holy? Because when, when, when his priests are holy, he's magnified, he's glorified. And that's what God's desire is, is that they would be a holy people, a holy priest, a holy nation, so they would magnify God's glory. But also it comes back to this additional promise that God had made to them, ultimately so the, the promise of blessing, right? So that they would share his blessing to an unbelieving world through them, to all the other nations around them. But in order to magnify a holy God, think about this as it relates to our own lives, in order to magnify a holy God, Israel had to be a holy people, and this is where the priesthood came in. 
And so looking back briefly, really quickly here to 1 Peter chapter 2, where we just read those two passages of Scripture, we see that today God wants his church to also minister in this world, it says, God says, as a holy priesthood, as a royal priesthood. And in doing so, calls us to be a people who minister as his priests by offering up spiritual sacrifices to him and by proclaiming to the world the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. That's the beginning of the foundation of being a priest as we serve and minister to God. The outflow of that relationship is to others. Now, when God chose Aaron, when we read here and we see that God chose Aaron and his sons as his priests, it's it's worth pointing out, it's notable to take this in, to understand that it was an act of God's sovereign grace, period. In other words, Aaron and his sons did nothing to earn or to deserve this distinguished position, and the same is true of us in regards to God choosing us, and in regards to God making us his holy priests, the holy priesthood. And, and I think this is important because when we live with the understanding that God in his grace has made us his priests and that there is nothing that we have done or nothing that we could do to earn or deserve what God has freely given to us, I personally am filled with an awe, with a gratitude, with a wonder of the spiritual privilege that I've been freely given and called to. It's an honor that God's bestowed upon us like salvation through faith by grace, nothing that of our own merit we've earned or deserved. God says, I choose you. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am. Not because of what you can do, but because of what I can do through you. What I want to do through you. Furthermore, it's this understanding of God's grace that reminds us Guys, it's, it's, it's the, the grace part of it, the grace aspect of it reminds us that our first obligation is to please the Lord and to serve him. And often that, that can, that, we can get that messed up in the everyday application of the understanding of this as we sometimes think that it's about pleasing other people. But first it's about pleasing God because he's the one that's chosen us. He's the one that's given it to us. And if we do this, if, if, we, if, we, if we're living to please the Lord, if we're living to serve the Lord, if we do this, then God will work in us and through us to accomplish his, 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 his work in this world. There's a good example of this. There's a good example of this presented to us in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, we read there about Jesus restoring Peter back to himself. Remember that? Back to himself, God restoring Peter back to himself, but also back to a ministry, to the ministry of, of, of a disciple or even as a, the ministry of apostle. And this was all after Peter had denied Jesus three times. And Peter needed to be restored for his own sake, for his own well-being. But in that passage of Scripture, we see, we read that Jesus questioned Peter, Right? But when we begin to think about priesthood and being, being used by God and being, 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 being in the spot where we're, we're ministering to God so that he can work in and through us, it's important to understand that, that, that Peter did not, or God did not ask Peter if he loved the people or even if he loved the ministry. 
Not to say that those things aren't important, but they're not foundational. Rather, you guys know, if we read there in John chapter 21, verse 17, 15 through 17, Jesus asked Peter three questions. It's the same question each time. Three questions. And he said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? You truly love me more than these. And Peter said, yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, interesting. Listen, he said, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered and said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says this time that Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him for a third time, do you love me? And Peter said, he said, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. And Jesus responded by saying, feed my sheep. In this example of Jesus restoring Peter, I read this to you in the context of where we're studying this morning because it illustrates for us that a servant's, a priest's, our most important obligation And really, guys, it's a privilege, is it not? But our most important obligation and privilege is to love the Lord our God. To love Him. And it's important. It's an important obligation in regards to priesthood or to being called to priest because all ministry, for if all all ministry and, 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 and all of our service to God, whether, guys, it doesn't have to be, it starts with this. Whether it's to our spouse or ministry to our children, to our spouse, to our children, to our church, or, or to, to anyone else in the world, it all flows out of our love for God. Do you love me, Jesus says? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? And the response is, serve my people. Be a light, be a witness. Not just in word, but in deed. It's, it's, it's a real thing. And Jesus, and, 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 and clearly, guys, our love for God and our love for others, it's the main thing, is it not, that identifies us as followers of Christ, as his servants? And Jesus said as much, really, in his, to his disciples in John chapter 13, verse 35, when he said, to them that the world would know that we are his disciples by our love. Our love for God and our love for one another. But love is really only but one of, vir- one, one of many virtues that we're called to, the Bible says, to be clothed with. A virtue, love is a virtue that we're called to be clothed with, but it's one of many. And, 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 and we're told that we're, we're to be clothed with these things in order for us to be recognized by those around us as God's holy priests. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, it says this. It says, therefore, as, God, as God's chosen people, he chose us, right? As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience. And, and bear with each other and forgive what are grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on or clothe yourself, put on love, which binds them all together, all these other virtues, in a perfect unity. Love. And I point that out as we, as, we, as we go through this because just like God calls us to be clothed with these kinds of specific and special things, we see that so too the Levitical priesthood, the high priest was called to be clothed in a specific and special way. And we see that, that part of the, the, the pleasing God, now think about, it, think about this, we see that part of pleasing God in, re, in relationship to being a priest or, or in relationship to the Levitical priests, was, was to wear these garments that God had appointed for them to put on, to be clothed with. And no priest could, could dress just however they wanted. And the same is true as us. God says this is how we're to be clothed. They couldn't put on whatever they wanted when they ministered at the temple. They had to wear all the garments that designed for them, that God designed for them. And, and it even says at the end of this chapter that there was a consequence of death for them if they did not. God took it seriously. And when it came to the high priest, we see that there were several unique things that he had to wear, beginning with the ephod and, and, and the girdle is what we're told. It was a sash that went around the middle to hold it together. And so if you look there in verse 6, excuse me, verse 5, we'll read on down through verse 14. It says, it says, they shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and of scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. Then verse 8, it says, and the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on, on it, the sash, it shall be of the same workmanship, made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen. Then verse 9, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names will be on one stone, and six names on the other stone, in the order of their birth, with the work of an engraver in the stone, like the engraving of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. And you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as a memorial stone for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear the name before the Lord, it's key here, on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold, and you shall make two chains of pure gold like, like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. Now, I had the opportunity to go to the Temple Institute when I was in Israel in, in the old city Jerusalem and see some of these articles of clothing that, as well as other things that have already been built and prepared for when the temple is rebuilt. And, and, and seeing them makes a difference. I'm sorry I don't have a picture up here for you to look at this morning, but you can go to the Temple Institute website and look at some of these things for yourself and get a, a, a visualization of what's, what we're reading about here. But as we read here, we see that the ephod, it was really nothing more than, 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 than a two-piece sleeveless garment 
right? It just kind of draped over the priest. It did not have any sleeves. It was held together on, on each shoulder up here by a jeweled golden clasp. And at the waist, it was held in with this band, it says, or this sash made of the same kind of material. And in these verses, we're told that the, 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 the ephod and the sash, which was ultimately the outermost part of the garment, because there were many different layers that the high priest specifically had to wear, that, 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 that um, it was all held together by, by, um, at the priest's waist. And all of them that were made pr- pr- initially with white linen, and then they were embroidered with all these other threads, the gold, the blue, the purple, and the scarlet threads. But the significant thing about this ephod wasn't the fabric. The significant thing about it wasn't the fabric or even the colors that were used to embroider it, even though they were, if you remember, they're the exact same colors, the exact same threads that were used to make the inner covering of the tabernacle. So they were color-coordinated. <laughs> um, rather, the most significant thing was, was that all of the names, as we're told here, that all of the names of the tribe of Israel, six on each side, were engraved on these two stones. And then they were, they were listed, we're told here, according to the birth order and set on the two-shoulder clasp that held the two pieces of fabric together. And these stones, with the names of the tribes, were significant as we read here, because whenever the high priest wore his special robes, it was a picture. It was a picture of, of it was to be a picture um, of, of the high priest carrying the people on his shoulders before the Lord. And I love that passage of scripture where it tells us to bear up one another. And, 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 and that's it. That's the idea about it. Furthermore, these two onyx stones reminded the priest of two important facts. The first was that the tribes of Israel were precious in the sight of God. The people that he was serving <clears throat> as he first served God, these people were precious to God. And that was an important thing to be reminded of because they were knuckleheads. Just like the people that we're called to heads that we're called to serve sometimes can be knuckleheads. They can they can be people that we don't really want to serve. But when we understand how precious and how valuable they are to God, it changes our perspective in how we, we love and minister and serve one another. They were precious to them in the sight of God. And secondly, the, the, the stones also reminded the priest that he was not in the tabernacle to display his beautiful robes or to exalt his special position. I'm the priest, right? He was there to represent the people before the Lord and to carry them on his shoulders by making intercession for them and lifting them up before God. In other words, these stones with the names on them to remind the high priest that he had been called to serve the people and not seek to be served by the people. And in light of this, we're reminded that if the church, if we the church are to be faithful to this call of holy priesthood, then we must serve Jesus by serving one another and by serving a lost world. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 27, he said, yet, Jesus said this, he said, yet I, Jesus said that about himself, I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus did not come to be served, but 
to serve, right? And it's his example that we have been called to follow. And this truth is further emphasized for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, where it says this. <clears throat> Excuse me, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind, Paul writes to the Philippians and to us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and then we're given the example of the ultimate servant, a step of servitude that Christ took, that he, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, as we read here, attached to the front of the ephod by the two golden chains that hung on the high priest's chest was the breastplate, and, 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 and this is described for us in verses 15 through 29. Um, for the sake of time, I'm only going to read a little bit of it to you, and then we'll stop and go through it. It says, You shall make the breastplate of judgment artistically woven according to the Workmanship of, the, workmanship of the ephod, and you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen, and you shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square, okay? And a span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width, and you shall put settings of stone in it. And the first rows of stone, the first row shall be a sardis, a topaz, and an emerald, and, and this shall be the first row. And then it goes on to list the other rows and the different stones that represented the different tribes of Israel. And in verse 21, it says, And the stones shall have the names of the tribe of the Israel according to the names, like the engravings of the signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes. And it goes on to describe how it was hung there. But more importantly, when we get down to verse 28, if you pick up there, it says, And they shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings, two rings of the ephod using a blow cord so that it is a so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod, so that the breastplate does not come loose for the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of the judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And then it says, inside this folded and sewn together breastplate of judgment were these two things called the Urim in the thumb, and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. And it says, Aaron's, all these things all rested in there, on the, in the breastplate, and they hung over Aaron's heart when he went in before the Lord. And so, um, like the ephod, the breastplate we read here was a piece of beautiful fabric, in, intricately woven, it says. And it was embroidered with the gold, the purple, the blue, and the same scarlet thread. And on, on it was these 12 jewels ranged in, in, in four rows. And each of these stones had the name of the 12 tribes engraved on them. And so I skip down to verse 29 because according to verse 29, the high priest not only carried the names or the people figuratively upon his shoulders, we see that figuratively he also carried them on his breast above his heart, over his heart. And this too has symbolic meaning and it reminds us, it reminds us that if we don't if we, if we don't have sincere love in our hearts for those we are called to serve, we won't be concerned about their needs. It'll become a duty rather than a ministry. 
And I believe that as servants for God, we should honestly be able to say to the people whom we are serving, I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. Now in verse 16, I, I read that. It says, we're told that this breastplate was a span by a span, which is, some say, is about nine inches by nine inches, and it was sewn in such a way that it was folded over so that it could hold two additional items, which are mentioned in verse 30, that were called the urm and the thummim. And even though we don't know much about these two things, we do know that the words translate from the Hebrew language into lights, urim, and perfections, thummim. And we also know from accounts recorded in Numbers chapter 27 and in 1 Samuel chapter 30 that the high priest used them to determine the will of God for the nation, for the people. And even though the Bible never describes the actual procedure that, that, that was used or undertook with the Urim and the Thummim, many Bible commentators think that, there was, that the Urim and Thummim were two stones that were inside this pouch, one black and one white, and the stone and the priest would, would, would withdraw the stones, whether it was the white one or the black one, to somehow determine the will of God, while others think that they were jewels that would shine in some kind of special way to indicate, again, the leading of the Lord, the seeking and the leading of the Lord. However, it's useless, I think, to speculate because the details have never been revealed to us in the Bible but nevertheless, you might be thinking like me, it would be really cool to have a device like the Urim and the Thummim today for determining what God wants us to do. It would sure simplify things, would it not? So many times people come into me counseling and it's like, this is going on, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. <clears throat> but the fact of the matter, guys, is we do have something even better. We have the Word of God. We have the Word of God, which is so much better to guide our steps, considering the Word of God reveals the God of the Word. It reveals His character, His desires, and His purposes for us as people. And the better we know God, the better then we know His will for our lives. Furthermore, guys, God's Word contains precepts for us, things we're called to obey, warnings to heed us, promises for us to claim, and principles for us to follow. And if we were sincerely willing to obey, the Bible teaches us that God is willing to direct us. And I believe that if we still had the Urim and the Thummim to discern, the, to discern or to determine the will of God, we probably wouldn't search the Scriptures as much. We probably wouldn't humble ourselves as much as we come before the Lord seeking Him. Or we would not pray as much as we do today as we seek God's direction. And seeking the Lord and praying as a congregation is something that we're going to do as we close this morning with the time that we have left. We do this the second, Tuesday, second Sunday of every month. Some of the elders and leaders in the church will come forward and we'll worship the Lord. And, and, and we invite you to come forward and to let your requests and your needs be made known and receive prayer as we come as priests together seeking what the Lord has for us. And so as the worship team comes up and gets prepared, we'll close by reading these last set of verses in verses 36 through 43, which says, And you shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holiness to the Lord. 
and you shall put on it a blue cord that it may be on the turban. So there was a hat, the high priest, a turban uh, that, that held this, this gold engraved plaque that said holiness to the Lord. It was on the front of the turban. And it says in verse 38, so it shall be on Aaron's forehead that the, the Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. We see the, the, the mediator position of the high priest, and of course we know that, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate high priest, holy to the Lord, who has become our high priest and has made us acceptable before God his Father. And it says in verse 39, you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread, and you shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of the woven work. For Aaron's sons, you shall make the tunics and you shall make the sashes for them and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. Again, the outward things that God clothes us with are for glory, for his glory, for beauty, to show others just how wonderful our God is. And so you shall put, verse 41, on them, Aaron, on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. And that's what we're going to read about next week. And you shall make it for them, for them linen trousers to cover the nakedness. This was the innermost garment that they shall so that they should reach up from the waist to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and his sons and they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar ministering in a holy place that they do not Incur, incur iniquity and die, and it shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. So, um, the, 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 the turban that the high priest wore was simply a linen cap, right? Nothing fancy, nothing special. But on it, held by this lace of blue, of blue was, a, was this golden plate that says, Holiness to the Lord. And I want to close with this. I'll end with this. And it said that, and, and, and we see the application because, because, um, and, and, and because of this, really, uh, we see that from chapter 29, you can look over there in verse, 20, in verse 6, that it was also called a holy crown because of the placard that was on it. And, and, and it was called this because it's, it, it emphasized the fact that God wanted his people to be holy. To be holy like he is holy. And sadly, I believe this is a message that is, that is no longer communicated in, 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 to the church as a whole. Guys, God's called us to a great and wonderful thing. And he calls us to be holy. To live holy lives. To be holy like he is holy. Let's pray. Father, Thank you, God, for this time this morning. As we continue with our time of, of worship and seeking you, I pray, God, that our request would be made known and that you would hear us. And, God, that, uh, that any of these things that you put on our heart, Lord, if we just need to work them out with you this morning, God, that you would do that work in us, that we would be humble before you, that we would be moldable in your hands. God, so that we might be clothed in a way that you want us to be close, so that we may serve you like you want us to serve you and serve others around you. Father, thank you for this great honor and privilege of calling us your holy priests. 
And Father, may we live up to the, the honor and privilege that you've given to us as you empower us and by your spirit and as we humbly submit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, if you want to, people are going to be praying. If you guys